Thank you for pressing play on episode 86 of A-Sides. I'm Andy, and this episode features a conversation I had with my friend and musical sensei, Denny Smith of The Great Affairs. We dove into the classic albums of Dokken, from their debut album, Breaking the Chains, all the way through their live album, Beast from the East. Hopefully you enjoy this episode. And cue music. I don't know how many of you have heard, but there's a flesh-eating virus going around. Yeah, it's called music. Into the All right, well, thanks, man, for getting on the phone call and talking to me about docking. Man, any chance I get to talk about docking, you know, I'll <laughs> take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can feel the enthusiasm over the phone. <laughs> so going back, like, when did you discover docking? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I wouldn't have known this answer, probably, but about... A month or so ago, there's some buddies of mine have a podcast called The Narcissistic Music Disorder. Oh, yeah, uh, the guy from Ghost of Sunset. I think. Yeah, John John and uh, Scott Benting, they had this thing, and they were talking, they did a thing, an episode on compilations, like mm-hmm. soundtracks, any, just compilation albums in general. And John brought up this album called Masters of Metal. And I, I don't know what year it came out, 83, 82, something like that, um, maybe a little bit later, but... Uh, I had, I begged my mom to buy it for me. We were at like super X or Kmart or something in Morton. And I begged my mom to buy this for me because it had lick it up by kiss on it. So one of the other songs that was on there was breaking the chains. It had like Y and T and black Sabbath. And I remember Tom, I hated rush as Tom Sawyer. And that was on there. Uh, <laughs> rainbows on the but anyways so i really wanted it for that look it up but it had breaking the chains and i thought that song was super cool um and it just for some reason that it stuck with me and that was well before they really blew up you know um and then a couple years later maybe not even that much longer after uh i signed up for the columbia the record club thing where you get the 12 albums for a penny and i you know, you just get the little pictures, the little thumbnail pictures in the ad, and you can't really tell what some of them are. And I didn't really know anything about, I was the oldest of four, so I didn't have anybody tell me what was cool. And I knew I wanted Motley Crue Shout at the Devil because I already had that on a Kmart copied cassette. So I, I marked off that one. And then I just started marking off anything that looked like it was hard rock. And Tooth and Nail was on there. So, and I, my version of Tooth and Nail is super worn out. It's that same one that I got from the, record club i still have it manufactured by columbia house under license it says it right on the back cover <laughs> so but i got that and i love it man i mean i i, I wore that thing i you know there, for some reason and it's a miracle because most of the records from back then are scratched to death this one does not skip anywhere i put it on yesterday and it still you know it sounds pretty beat up but uh it is intact and man i i just love that thing and i think i got under lock and key not long after. And I went back and bought breaking the chains, you know, several years after it came out, probably just to complete the collection. So, you know, 
I, uh, it was just one of those things, man. It was, I guess I was one of those dumb kids that just thought the album cover, thank God it wasn't like Molly Hatcher or something I wouldn't have liked, you know, <laughs> those are pretty metal looking, but, uh, we're not metal at all. Uh, do you remember, I, uh, catching any of their, um, videos on MTV? Well, I was just going to say, I don't remember ever seeing that. I don't, I don't recall seeing the break in the chains video until years later. I, maybe I did, but it didn't register with me. Um, and it's probably a good thing cause it's pretty ridiculous and it's so bad. I mean, those, they had some of the, those early videos are really pretty terrible. Uh, you know, some of them, I mean, the production value came up by a few bucks on, you know, the stuff for under lock and key, but they were still like super ridiculous. And those guys cheese dicked hard on, in those videos. And I, it's funny to watch now because I mean, I guess they were never really a metal metal band. Not that that would have, you know, exempted them from acting like idiots or anything, but they were like cheesing so hard in those videos. It was, it was beyond, you know, like even for a hard rock band of the day, it, like the breaking the chains video, he's got the little chains on his for guitar strings. And what is Don Dockin wearing in that, the bedroom scene thing? He looks like he's, he put his karate gi on, but forgot the pants. <laughs> and then I noticed when I watched the home video, he jumps up and he actually has a black belt on. So it looks like it really was a karate uniform, just minus the pants. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, yeah, he's not wearing any pants or. or no, it's, it's just it's like. Too, it's almost awkward to, to watch. He looks like they waxed his legs right before the shoot or something. <laughs> it's really strange. And so that that would you know even as a kid that probably would have been a little bit off-putting to me but um and you know george is rocking the kajagugu lamal hairdo and stuff i mean they were a really odd like visually kind of an odd band there for for a minute but uh is that what kind of hairstyle that was because i thought he looked like how i used to have a bowl cut in the 90s it looked like somebody took a bowl of hair dye <laughs> and just dumped it on his head well, it's weird because if you look at the first, there's a weird hair evolution going on in that band. On the first album, you can't really tell. George like it still has like black hair, maybe. And Don's got, I don't know if he's rocking a wig or what's going on, but he's got something going on with a headband and the bullet belt. And he's got a glass of whiskey, it looks like, in his hand. Um, and then on the second album, Don's got like, he looks like Adrian Barbeau from escape from new york he's got like this curly hair like a poodle kind of thing and george and by then george's got that two-tone thing and he yeah he totally looks like go look up lamal you know the never-ending story singer from kajagugu he looks like lamal he's got lamal's haircut and that was kind of the i guess more like a new wave kind of thing i don't know Um, the other two guys look pretty cool there's a lot of bracelets and you know, zippers on stuff, but you know, it's fairly for the time, pretty street looking, not, they weren't super cheap, like super spandex. It wasn't until under lock and key. They got, they did that. Whatever, whoever styled them for that, with that weird, like, I don't even know what these things we would call these outfits. They got on that cover. Like Don Johnson's blazers from Miami vice. Well, yeah, but they look kind of like, I don't know, like a, like the people that did Adam Ant's wardrobe design this stuff. I mean, Georgia's got like some kind of sash over. I don't know what's going I mean, they never wore this stuff. I never saw any photos of them ever wearing this stuff on stage. It must've just been for the album cover, but I mean, it's pretty, pretty silly. 
I mean, I don't know how else to to describe it. It's it's very styled. I'm not sure what they were going for on that one. Great record, though. I guess it's really late in the 80s, but I got Beast um, from the East in front of me. And they actually look like a normal rock band there. Yeah, because by the time they did Back for the Attack, they had kind of toned down the the glammy, whatever they were trying to go for. I mean, let's face it, dude. They're not, I mean, they're not a bunch of homely dudes or anything, but they weren't, there's no pretty, I mean, George is probably the prettiest dude in the band back then, but there's no pretty boys in it. So trying to, you know, what do they say? Lipstick on a pig, as they say, kind of thing. It just doesn't really do it. So they toned it down a lot for Back for the Attack, which I guess that was that same tour. Because by the time they did that walk away video for the the one studio track on that record, they were all just wearing jeans and stuff in that video. So it wasn't they they weren't doing the full on. They kind of went back to where they started, is what it seems like. Yeah. I don't uh I don't know what the if the record company said, Hey, we need you guys to get dialed up for this or something. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but it's <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't working. And, and they didn't look like that in the videos even like the if you think about it the it's not love video where they're on the flatbed rolling through town they're not all you know tartered up like that it, they just look like you know four dudes in a, in a metal band kind of so but i mean hey whatever sign of the yeah. times i'm sure the chicks liked it so <laughs> well that first album i guess breaking the chains it's kind of weird that came out in 81 but then in Germany and then it uh kind of took off in 83 I guess Yeah man I got a weird US story version. about that too because um and I learned a lot I I kind of read through Wikipedia while I was listening back to these but when I was I first got a job working at the co-op in Evergreen Square this is in I don't know 90 I don't know mid 90s some, sometime and um but one of the deals you got as an employee was you could, everything was at cost. Like all the used stuff was at cost. So if you wanted to buy a cassette, which I was still rocking cassettes back then, um, that was 50 cents, man. We sold them for like $3, but we only gave like 50 cents when people traded them in. So I just started scooping up and we had tons of tapes. So I started scooping up everything I did not own that I always wanted to own. If we had it used, I bought it. So I got all these albums that I'd never had or that I had, traded or sold or whatever and then i got this really weird uh Ital- i think it was italian compilation cassette and it had two docking songs on it and one of them i think was i think young girls which is on this and the other one was called we're illegal but it was i already had breaking the chains by then and when, I, when the song came on i was like man this is this is live to rock rock to live it had totally different lyrics it was like a early version of the song with a completely different set of lyrics to it. So when I was reading through the thing, they talked about how there's other versions of these songs. They've been recorded and re-recorded. Um, the version of Paris is burning. That's on the German version. It's just called Paris and it's a studio version and not a live version. And I've never had that out, that version of the album. So I may have to track that down. So yeah, it sounds like this thing maybe went through a few iterations before it made it to, you know, the final version showed up in America. But I, I also thought it was weird. They said that Breaking the Chains is the fourth single. They released three other songs entirely overseas as singles. That wasn't even the primary single, which it's kind of the only obvious. Yeah, yeah, really. 
hit on it. But it's a cool. It's a you know it it holds up better. Than, it's not as well produced as the other albums, but there's some cool stuff on it, man. I thought um, that I can't see you song is kind of like a power pop song almost. It didn't even sound like a you know it's not really even hard rock necessarily. But there's some cool. Yeah, I thought stuff it sounded it. like I just jotted down. Um, it sounds like some kind of poppy go go's. Yeah, yeah, it's like, like a, a real yeah. obvious chorus, and and uh, it's just kind of driving and everything. But I mean, there's. I love that Paris is burning and, and uh Night Rider's a cool song. But there's other I mean this I thought side two on, on this was the superior batch of songs, man. I thought side two smoke other than breaking the chain that smoke side one. And the lyrics are all kind of you know, it's <laughs> it's it's not, you know, poet laureate kind of stuff or anything, but it's of its time, man. It was pretty cool. And George, I don't know how much of this is all George playing lead on it maybe some of it's don because some songs he really throws down and then other ones are really subdued so i don't know if don i know i have a video i have a really cool bootleg from the beat club in germany from that first album tour and juan is still the bass player it's before jeff tilson joined the band and don's actually playing guitar in that which i never saw i never saw him play guitar live huh. later Weird. but there's a there's a great scene in it uh, if I can find it on YouTube, I'll send you the clip. But uh, there, you know, George pretty much always used a cable. He wasn't really a wireless guy, and he trips over his cable and he almost face plants. It's like it was like a televised, you know, it was a German TV program, <laughs> and he about biffs it on stage. It's great. He recovers, you know, because <laughs> he, he's cool. He recovers really well. But yeah, his Kajagugu hair was bouncing all over the place. He about <laughs> uh, went into the monitors. I actually thought this album, though, Breaking the Chains, it was kind of weird. I guess I haven't lived with it as long. I've only listened, this is only like maybe the third time I've listened to it, but I guess I thought it was a little bit all over the place. Like, do you think maybe they were kind of finding their sound or something? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know, man, because, you know, one thing that's not in the mix, obviously, is there was no Jeff Pilsen, and he was a really involved songwriter with them, so... The songs are a little bit, I, I had made a note that I thought between this album and the next album, the arrangements got a lot classier. Like the music was more sophisticated on all the other albums. This album sounds really rudimentary and not, um, it just sounds like more straight, like the kind of, you know, like if you had to cast a generic hard rock band for a movie about the eighties that, and they put those cheesy songs in there, like these generic hard rock songs that have stupid tile it sounds like one of those just a cut above that with a really good guitar player it's not it just doesn't have the, the substance the other and some people would probably argue that none of their albums have substance but i, I really like them <laughs> so I, I don't feel that way but this one is a lot more um just shallow in terms of arrangement and and not all of it there's some stuff that sounds more like you said maybe they're finding their sound and some songs they stuck it and other ones they didn't you know didn't quite land on their feet i mean there's just some really cheesy i mean like even for them some really cheesy lyrics on it and yeah because not to knock john messiah but i thought it was kind of like it made me laugh when i saw you guys commenting back he listed his favorite songs because he put felony on there and i was like yeah i kind of laughed and cringed because i was like that's the one that i thought it sounded like like lyrics like a poison a more glam <laughs> band like that would have well, it's a lot of that, you know, double entendre kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, Don's playing the Lothario kind of guy. Like, 
he's a you know rock stud and all the chicks want him kind of thing there's a lot of that on there and I, you know they're not real again they're not really a pretty boy band per se so that some of that stuff kind of rings hollow for me but it's, yeah like i guess i know, thought it fell flat but it is like you're yeah. saying par for the course for the 80s well and there's a lot of if you if you really dig back into their history there's a lot of stuff that predates that first album there's that back on the streets uh collection thing that's you know they've got probably a couple albums worth of material that predates this as you know it, but it was totally different members none of these guys were in it just don and you know uh guys that ended up being in like you know great white and stuff he had various lineups but it's a uh, and that stuff is the same way you know there's i mean the songs are every once in a while there's a hook that pops out you're like ah, i could see where this could have been turned they none of them sound like fully realized that tooth and nail man it was it's such a night and day like a, a such progression forward to me at least that i just you know i guess i can only attribute it to jeff pilson must have you know made him up their game i that's maybe that's just an assumption but you know, oh, no, because that's what I was thinking. Piece. I was like, he's like their secret sauce or something. Yeah, and he is live, too. His voice and everything is, you know, without him, you know, this they, they wouldn't have – some of those choruses would never have taken off live like they did with him. He's a great singer. He's a great arranger. Really good producer, too, actually. I mean, he didn't produce these records, but stuff he has done is really – it's always really well put together. I was going to save this for later, but I'll throw it out there since we already mentioned – Jeff, but I guess the first time I saw them live was 2013, and obviously it was just Don and uh, Mick Brown in there. Yeah, but I guess like I didn't, I didn't like it like when I saw them live because I guess I had been listening to those albums, and so like what I'm hearing is you know the harmonies and like the vocals and whatever Pilsen's doing, and that was not there when I saw it live, and I was just like, oh, like I don't like it. You know, Don's Don's voice has deteriorated some, but over the years they've always made a point of getting guys like that guy, that Chris McCarvel guy they've got now on bass. He's a really good singer, so it, it picks up a lot. I mean, George never really sang. In fact, it used to be a joke in magazines. They would make jokes about how they they took George's mic away because he's a terrible backup singer. But <laughs> um, you know, Mick is a was a good backup singer, but Jeff was a you know like almost like a co lead vocalist, you know, and he was pretty you know. Uh, pretty critical to that harmony blend too. The voices worked well together and they've had, I mean, I saw him with Mark Bowles that he used to sing for Ingve. He was playing bass for him. You know, got, these guys are really, you know, they got really good quality backup singers, but you know, you, there's not much you can really do. I, this is not meant to, I don't want to hack on the guy cause he's, you know, he's getting up there in age yeah. or anything, but I listened to back to back to the, to that beast from the East and the return, whatever it was called, the, reunion record they did a couple years ago yeah and they're easily tuned down at least a step on there and he's still just kind of talking his way he's, he's dropped everything down and register and it's you know and that's something they've been doing for a while and if you don't have that you know he don used to really belt that stuff and you know you drop that down to speaking range and you know the hooks go away i hate to say it you know he can sing the same melody but if you sing it down here i mean you know i've, I've heard kiss of death sound like it was a might as well have been a spoken word performance. Oh God! <laughs> you know, yeah. I so, don't totally want to knock the band either, but I guess that was maybe the first realization that I had for actually seeing a concert because uh, I had only seen like maybe like about three years worth of concerts at the time. But that yeah. was the first time where I guess I 
had an experience where it didn't jive with, you know, um, album versus live. They did a really good job. I mean, the one thing they did really well over the years, 99.9% of the time, is they had, especially these last few years, that, or several years now, actually, that John Levin guy is a obviously a massive Lynch fan, and he apes the guitar tone. He, gets the, he does the parts right. So at least at the guitar side of things, the ground is getting covered. You know what I mean? Oh, oh yeah, for and, sure. But if you listen to those records, I went back because I wasn't really super familiar with them. And just for this interview thing, I listened to that Broken Bones and Lightning Strikes Again. Um, I wasn't at all familiar with those, really. And you can hear his, you know, his voice is pretty ragged on those, too. And that's in the studio, you know. So, and then when did that Broken Bones come out? 2000, you know, 2012 or something like that. I mean, that's... (laughs) You know, we're talking 10 years ago, so. I think some of the tunes, though, on that lightning strikes again, at least it starts out kind of good. Yeah, it sounds, yeah. it really does sound like a, more like vintage. But again, uh, there you go. You take uh, Pilsen out of the equation, and you take Lynch out of the equation, and there's this, you know, the half the songwriting is gone. And I was amazed, too, going back through these records. It's odd, because there's only one where they don't do this, but uh, you can very easily access the, you don't have the LPs themselves, the writing credits for them. And with the exception of under lock and key, it tells you in pretty, pretty good detail who does, does what. And there's a couple of those albums where Don's almost, I hate to say barely involved on them. You know what I mean? And so a lot of that stuff was Pilsen and Lynch almost entirely, you know? So again, you take key ingredients out of the mix. It's just not going to taste the same, you know, it's just the way it is. So, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't think about that kind of stuff. I just, if I liked the song, I liked the song, and I liked the album, you know, whatever. But now it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to buy that if those guys aren't on it, you know? True. I'm not going to buy it just because it says docking on the cover. To take it back, I guess, I back instead of knocking, docking, uh, we're rocking, docking. <laughs> but, um, well, the next one in line was Tooth and Nail. And then, well, that was the first one with Pilsen. And it does kind of, it sounds like a really concise like record. Like I even went back and listened to it this morning too at work, and it just it's like really quick and it's it's really punched up. I don't yeah, know, and there's a lot of really neat. Uh, there's even yesterday just listened to it. Um, I kind of want to go back now and listen to it with headphones on because there's some really cool production stuff in it. Some little you know tricks with panning and stuff that they do, and some you know reverse gates on the drums and. It's a, I mean, George too, that was, I think that's the first time you really get a sense of what a monster guitar player he was going to end up being. Cause the solos on that are, are, and they're really well structured too. Everything's got, you know, even when he's like just doing the, you know, widdly, widdly woo thing, it's really <laughs> cool. Put to, it's put together in a cool way. So like between the, all the note vomit parts are these really cool melodies and, and, and hooks that, kind of tie and there's a lot of stuff he did a bunch of cool stuff there's a lot of it on under lock and key in particular he does this one thing that i think is really badass and that's the he'll do the solos and sections to where they over it overlaps itself Hmm. almost like it's two guitar players going back and forth and i think that's is kind of badass but he's got there's something i noticed i don't know if i've ever picked up on this before but on that record i noticed it a lot is that he plays behind the beat for a guitar player, it's strange. Just the way he drags his, you know, into a chord and stuff. 
he plays just a little bit behind the beat and it makes the songs greasier. It's just really cool. And that's something else that you don't get when you take him out of the equation. It's like that that's his a thing he does. You know, it's a style. It's a those are his hands. You know, it's his hands on the fretboard. It's really cool. Um how identifiable that is. I don't know why I've never picked up on that before, but that record, yeah, that was a you know, if you'd only heard Breaking the Chains and then you heard that, you wouldn't even necessarily know it was the same guitar player. It's pretty pretty huge leap for him, I thought. Huh. I don't know all that technical stuff, but I don't know. What I'm hearing sounds cool, so Well, it's like this, like if say you're counting to four and on the two everybody hits a A chord, mm-hmm. you know. He hits his, not all the time, but a lot of the time, he play, he'll hit it just a little bit late. Oh, okay. it's, just something, it's just something that he does. It's, you know, a lot of players do that. It's a, usually it's the drummer that people make note of that do that. Like Stone Temple Pilots, that drummer plays behind the beat mm-hmm. all the time. And it makes the songs feel trippy and weird and, and you know, it's just got a thing to it. You don't, most guitar players, especially in this day and age where everything's on the grid, Pro Tools, everybody's trying to play like right on the on the damn one on the click, but he's got a thing where he just does this. It's just you know George plays for George. It's very it's very obvious, and he's got a. It's just a style, you know. It's just and I don't know that I've ever made a conscious note of that, but I did. But I was listening to that record. I was like, man, it's, that's really cool. It's a it's just slinky sounding. It's it's huh. badass. Plus he's just a badass guitar player in general, you know. You know it's him right away on everything. You know, he's just got a tone. Unless it's John Levin trying to be him, then you might be a little bit confused for a second. But We did an episode, Brent and I, where we were doing like our uh, top four guitar players or people that we figured we'd put their heads on like on uh, Mount Rushmore. Well, I yeah. really, really wanted to have George Lynch in my four, but I was like, I think Brent kind of had that with Nuno. It's like maybe that's kind of somebody that these guys we wanted to put in there, but we're like, well, maybe we were kind of like afraid of pulling the trigger. But yeah, George, like, I don't know. Like I almost like everything that he's ever done. Yeah. There's not, I mean, he, he does kind of uh, saturate the market with oh, George yeah, sure. related yeah. output. Cause I mean, that's just his business model, I guess. But um, you know, if you watch the only thing that bothers me about, george now and i you know i get it man you've been playing these some of these songs for 30 plus years and you probably get sick and you know power cording your way through breaking the chains or whatever because it's you know that's one of the things i liked about when i was a kid is it was easy to learn on guitar because it's real basic but you know if you watch these his guest appearances with don now when he gets up and just does like a couple songs man he just jerks it up there dude i mean it's cool it's super cool because he's still a monster but you know, there's solos where there were never solos before, and he's he modifies the chord progressions and he adds stuff. It's, he's all he's just that dude is just you can tell he's like a that guy probably plays whenever there's a guitar nearby. It's he probably grabs it. It's one of those kind of things you can tell he really loves playing. But at the same time, man, it goes back to that people know these songs, you know, a certain way. And he's clearly bored playing him that way. So he just kind of does what he, I mean, it's usually 90, 99.9% of the time it's in key. It's, he doesn't, you know, take the thing into the toilet, but he definitely uh, embellishes a lot. And when he does it with his solo thing, it's, you know, it's almost as bad, but I mean, it's still cool. I still watch it because it's, I think it's bitching, but it's, you know, there's different schools of thought on that probably. 
he definitely has a uh, he's a super aggressive player but i just wonder sometimes if the you know you're talking about him being on this you know mount rushmore of guitar players and stuff i just wonder sometimes if maybe all of the drama in that band and you know you know who was really the asshole kind of being swirling around as a as a big question might have hurt his legacy a little bit you know what i mean yeah, and the that, fact that he does yeah. crap out an album every six months too. Yeah, he's almost like that. maybe like uh, too present or something. If he held back mm-hmm. a little bit or something, but I mean, well, I guess maybe you know, he's got to make money. I don't know. He's... Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, he's a working musician, and I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you know, there's that thing too of like you got to go away for people to miss you, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and if you and if you only if you make a statement record every three years and it's it's awesome. That's great, but if you put three records out a year, and you know that's diminished because you're, you know, really testing your, the levels of your creativity and quality of your output. Yeah. You know that may may and also too, man. I mean, keep in mind, you know, Lynch Mob has had I don't even know how many lineups at this point. They had one album that was a rap album, sounded like Rage Against the Machine, kind of. That kind of shit kind of goes against you too, you know those kind of failed experiment things, you know, that, that stuff doesn't do a lot to cement your, you know, legacy pantheon of guitar players, but I don't know. I've never heard anything he's done that I didn't at least go shit. That was cool. I may not necessarily need to come back to it and listen to the songs over and over again, but he's always got, there's always at least one guitar thing that, you know, is a trip. Are there any cool songs that stand out to you from that uh, tooth and nail? I love the whole thing. I mean, just got lucky. He's great. It was always cool when they would do that live, and they, Jeff Pilson would take the lead vocal on that. I thought it was pretty slick. Dom sometimes would play bass on it, but um, I did. I saw them on one thing. I thought was this was funny, but I saw them on the Shadow Life tour at House of Blues in Chicago, oh, and yeah. they did the you know they had to play the big without warning intro thing, which is cool, and then they come into <laughs> and they train wrecked it, man, and had to stop. And countered it and start start oh, over. I had never seen a uh, a like a big national band have to do that before, so it was pretty trippy. But I I love all of it, man. I really love when heaven comes down, just because it's so evil sounding, and I love that robot voice they've got in the outro, the super low robot voice on the something like like a like a vocoder or something on it on the when heaven comes down line. There's a I mean, it's it's that whole album's great, man. It's to me, it's pretty bulletproof. I, I don't have any. There's no duds on there, as far as I'm concerned. One that you were saying that Jeff, he's done just got lucky live. Like, I think Mick lately, or at least like I think he left the band now, but um, or like retired. But he would yeah. do, like tooth and nail live. Oh, I see. I've never seen that. I've never seen him sing that. Well, I've never seen seen him take a lead vocal on anything. I just Jeff. Uh, but that could be cool too. I mean, he makes a as a really good singer, man. It's funny. I noticed when I was looking at that breaking the chain record, he's not even credited as a backup singer on that. Hmm. So maybe that he hadn't really grown into that yet. But he was always. I mean, they did that one live night acoustic record, and um, their yeah, harmonies that's what are great he did. on that. He did tooth and nail on that. So maybe I have seen that. I have yeah. that album. So I guess I have. I used to have the VHS of that. Like maybe it was from Japan or something. Again, that goes back to what you're saying earlier about you hear them and you're like, eh, this isn't this isn't what I was expecting. There's those three voices worked really well together live, 
And, you know, you take any one of those out and you start messing with something that you might not find again, you know? So. Uh, well, I guess the <laughs> album that I like uh, the most or I would prefer or I go back to is the next one, Under Lock and Key. Apparently that was a, a popular thought based on the Facebook interplay yesterday. That seems to be a, a big one for people. I love that record too, man. Uh, I mean, that was, to me, I thought that, I didn't realize till later that that back for the attack was the bigger record but i thought they kind of ruled mtv during the under lock and key era man because in my dreams and uh that it's not love or those things were everywhere i never really understood why the hunter was a single i thought that was maybe one of the but when i listened to it yesterday i gotta admit man uh there's some duds on it 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 doesn't to me it doesn't have the consistency of of the uh tooth and nail record man like slipping away it's like that's like you know diet coke alone again kind of thing and it's just doesn't doesn't have the hook i really like the sound but maybe they did kind of try too hard once they had like that alone again as like a hit you know they kind of it seems like this album is split between uh songs like um just got lucky or alone again yeah and there's yeah, they were trying to like they're trying to tap that same formula. I, but you know yeah. what the, the I would the price of admission alone for Unchain the Night, and I, I'd be I'm cool with that because I love that song. Uh, in my dreams, I loved that song, but God, they played that out so hard. Uh, Lightning strikes again is killer. It's not love is killer. Yeah, don't lie to me. I mean, there's some there's some really good ones. There's just a few little. You know, like like you said, they were trying to mine stuff that worked for them before, maybe. I'm not really sure. I, you know, I don't know what went on behind, you know, closed doors at board meetings regarding Doc, and I have no mm-hmm. idea, but it definitely had that thing. And like I said, you add to that, the foofy wardrobe thing they had going on. It, clearly, it this album looks like somebody really had big plans for them, and tried to implement that by saying, look, what you guys are going to do, we're going to, we got these outfits for you. Dom, we're going to uh, do your hair up and make you look like a golden girl. I mean, that, there's just a <laughs> lot going on on this record that is clearly very calculated. And, you know, luckily they ditched it by the time they did the next one. But I mean, you did even the album covers, like, especially, I never even, thought about the key the dock and key thing in the background like that that's yeah see like i thought that was weird too like i thought it was just a big pillar of like flames or something but now i notice it's the dock and logo like turned on its side yeah I did, i'm just now realizing that too which is amazing because this came out in 1984 or five um 85 yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i <did laughs> never made this uh under lock and key oh now i get it you know uh, oh, French class like that. What, um, shrink the kid. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a really it's still a really solid record, man. I mean, just when the beginning of Unchained the Night comes on, it's like, man, okay, I'm turning this up here, like now, yeah. kind of thing. And there's a lot of really cool synthesizer stuff going on underneath the guitars on this record that I think is cool. The vocals uh, harmonies are amazing on there, but it's just you know, there's the unfortunate wardrobe thing happening and a couple songs. I mean, like that Jaded Heart song, it sounds almost like Def Leppard or something. They really were trying to do a, you know, 
oh, and you know what my other favorite thing about this record is? Like to make fun of? <laughs> oh. <laughs> is that the spoken word part in It's Not Love. Oh, when man, he's on I love song, that. <laughs> oh, man. That, that, I mean, that just takes the... I mean, that, there's no... <laughs> I mean, there's already that one horrible scene in the Breaking the Chains video where yeah. he's talking to the girl and it's... I mean, it's like that times 10. It's I I don't know who thought that was a good idea. I'm assuming yeah. Neil Kerner or whoever produced it, but it's just uh, <laughs> so. I think it's so bad that it's good too. There's something like that in a Megadeth song, and now right off the top of my head, I can't think of the song's name. It might be a thousand times goodbye from the album um, "The World Needs a Hero," but there's something where he's talking to a girl on the phone, and he goes, "You know what." You suck, and then it kicks into the solo. It's just as dumb as that uh, Dawkins song. Well, I mean, there's a million songs with that kind of thing in it. They're, it's usually at the beginning of the song or something, but it's just so funny, you know. Yeah. When she's saying "I gotta have you," I mean, it's just it's so uh, it's just funny, man. I, I I got I always get a kick out of that. When I watched the video, I noticed I was like, "Oh shit, I forgot about that. That's pretty bad." <laughs> and I did I learned something else too from Wikipedia yesterday i've always wondered this is not to get ahead but it kind of goes back um i bought the dream warriors uh 45 or 7 inch whatever the kids are calling it these days it was 45 back then the single when that came out yeah because i love that song and i was a huge nightmare on elm street fan and the the b side of it was back for the attack a song called back for the attack but there is no such song on back for the attack and i read yesterday that that song was recorded during the Underlock and Key sessions. That was a leftover from Underlock and Key. They just wow. used the title of the song for the next album, but didn't use the track. So I thought that was interesting. So there were more songs for this. I don't know how many other outtakes there are from it. I had noticed that too. And even you guys were talking about that. I think John asked that on like Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. But then um, I've got one of the Rock Candy docking CDs. The oh, the, rem- the reissue things. Yeah. I think it says... Ooh, a 16-page full-color booklet with a 4,000-word essay. But in the essay, like, they're still, it's it's still vague. It says, like, Don says, I was the one who chose all the album titles. I just felt Back for the Attack worked well, even though the song itself wasn't on the regular track listing. It's simple as that. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because he had, if you look on the inside, the liner notes for that record, I don't know what the version you has have has this but he thanks the guys at bc rich guitars in there and i thought again at the time i remember when he when i read that um i thought it was strange because he didn't ever play guitar i mean everybody knew he played guitar but he didn't play guitar live and then i saw a picture of him he's got a really cool uh bc rich back for the attack guitar that has the wolves and stuff yeah. from the the back cover and stuff painted on it it's really badass i don't i don't i'm assuming he still has it but um but that was in there too. And I thought, well, I wonder how long that's been after reading that thing. I was like, I wonder how long he's had that guitar. Like if he had that design previously, but yeah, it, it's a, uh, it's from the under lock and key sessions. They just didn't use it. Hmm. So there were other songs that could have gone in here that maybe we could have replaced slipping away. And, uh, man, there's not that many bad songs, maybe one or two bad songs on there. Not even bad, just not good. Less, <laughs> less than great, less than great couple less than great songs just say that well i guess still, that could lead still us my to... second favorite of, yeah. of the whole batch so it's still my second most favorite i guess that could lead us into the back for the attack album uh, yeah and this is my this this one uh 
I, you know, there's a funny story about how I got this too. I was in, I was a junior in high school and I had like, I want to say fifth period driver's ed maybe. And I had a friend, Jay Lundeen, and he had to do, oh, he, he didn't make, for some reason he didn't sign. I don't know what happened, but somehow or another he got bumped to after school driver's ed. And they were going to make him wait and take it next semester if he couldn't get, there was not anybody else signed up. To take the, there weren't enough students, basically. So he bribed me into being his, changing my driver's ed class to after school driver's ed. And he gave, I can't remember what he gave me, like $5 every class or something. And he bought me back for the attack when it came out. <laughs> and I still have the, that copy of the record. But, um, and I hated it. When I first got it, I thought I, I thought Kiss of Death was cool, and Lost Behind a Wall, and maybe So Many Tears. I thought those were the only songs I liked on it. I hated that Burn Like a Flame. I hated that stupid video with the <laughs> cheesy claymation thing. I just I did not did not like it at all. And now I listen to it, and it's you know it's not bad. It's I mean it's got Mr. Scary on it, and all the songs I just mentioned, and a couple other good ones. It's just too long and too, I don't know, man. I, I didn't, it just didn't have the the thing. And I didn't, Heaven Sent, was, I thought was a terrible single. But then when I looked at it, I was like, man, what else would you have released? You know, none of these songs are like, they didn't have their three obvious songs, I guess, this time. Yeah, I was kind of um, surprised Burning Like a Flame was the first uh, single. I mean, not that it's a bad song, but I thought I thought Heaven Sent was the first one. No, that came out later, and it had a cool video. I, I just, I mean, Dream Warriors came out a couple, what, maybe a couple of years before that this album did, at least a year before it, and then they tacked that on the end, so that's kind of like a bonus. But So that was already out there. The Kiss of Death was too heavy to be a single, but I think they thought Burning Like a Flame, and it was a hit. You know, it did pretty well. The video got played to death, but it just wasn't, it just sounded like a, it sounded like they were really try again, like you were saying earlier, like they were really trying to do to make a radio song, which I guess that's I'm not really sure, sure what the harm is in that. I just didn't like that version of I like the heavy, darker docking, you know, not them trying to be all, you know, super AOR. Yeah, like you're saying like thing. kiss of death, stuff like that. Yeah, those songs were cool, and it was a showcase for everybody. And I will say one thing about this record that I noticed. Don sings his ass off on, on this album. Like, he really, there's some really good, he does go for a couple pretty ridiculous high notes, but um, yeah, I thought he sang really well on it. And it's not, it also, I noticed something else different about it, too, is that it's the least, um, it's not as uh, big and washed in reverb as the other two records before it it's a little more raw it doesn't sound like the guitars are quite as ridiculously overdubbed and stuff i don't know if that was a conscious decision on their part i know it's mixed by different people so maybe that has something to do with it but yeah there's something in the booklet the liner notes for this says that i guess they were like out on tour or uh the guys weren't in the studio so they left they were going to leave notes for those guys to mix it but i guess they got the wrong like tapes, so they said that oh. some of them were like actually like not the right uh, tracks to use, and so it gave it more of like a raw sound. 
or something. But then I think they're saying in the book oh. that they thought it actually sounded better. It's it's cool. It's just not those yeah. other albums are really really wet. Like there's a ton of reverb on them, and they've got and there's a lot of like you know layered guitar stuff and complimentary guitar and a lot of that stuff is just absent from this it sounds almost like a really well polished demo and I, I maybe that was part of what turned me off about it that, you know it grew on me over time and i don't i you know i do listen to it periodically now pull it back out and give it a shake and i still like the same th- songs i like but like but i don't like like cry the gypsy and stop fighting love some of that stuff's just really pedestrian throwaway <laughs> And and they don't and there's 13 songs on it, so you didn't need you could have shit canned three of those and made a much more lean, you know, a solid record. But there's definitely this is the first album where it's like a very obvious filler stuff on it, and maybe they don't feel that way. But you know, by God, this is my interview, and I'm saying <laughs> it's got filler stuff on it. So, well, know. there's something that I was going to ask you too, because the booklet for this um, album says that basically. Uh, the guys, they were at like a point where they didn't get along at all. And they were kind of, it sounds like what I heard about uh, the one Dio uh, Sabbath live album where half the guys were in the studio at one time. And then the other guys came in later. Oh, yeah. And they're saying well, that Dokken wasn't in the studio. He like came in and recorded his vocals at night and the other guys were there like during the day and recorded everything. But like, how you were saying, this was my question though, is all the guys are like credited to the songs. And so it's got like Lynch, like slash Pilsen Man, I, slash. I had this exact uh, same question yesterday when I was reading the Wikipedia page because it said in there the same thing all the way back to yeah. Tooth and Nail that Don would come in and record vocals with Michael Wagner or whoever the engineer was. And then George would be there, you know, he would do his shift. So they were never in the studio together, but they there's co-writes. So yeah, how that's did what they... I was thinking. Like, how did they write stuff, or uh, did like those guys just write stuff, and he just kind of added uh, the vocal melodies and lyrics? Well, or I mean, what? that could be. I mean, if you watch the the home video, the Unchained the Night home video, they've got a Porta Studio in their hotel room, and Jeff mm-hmm. and George are working on songs that are. You can hear them playing. Um, which ones were they doing on there? Because I, I could tell what songs they were. Maybe Lost Behind a Wall is one of them, and maybe Prisoner. Yeah, Prisoner's or got one of, one of those. It says, yeah, so, Lynch, Pilsen, and Brown are the only guys credited to Prisoner. So, like, Don wasn't even credited. Maybe he, they just did the tracks and then he wrote, you know, vocal melodies and stuff over them and did his thing and got his writing credit. I mean, that would qualify you, obviously. He wrote lyrics and melodies on it. So, yeah. I don't know, and I don't know how a band could work that way. It also would make it really hard. I mean, obviously you've got an A&R guy that's telling you, yeah, these songs, we don't hear it kind of thing, but you know, you still have to narrow it down to your best 10 or 15 before you go in and do the tracking. And usually that would be, the band would be making that decision before or their management. You know, if you don't ever get together and I I don't know, I just don't know, man. That's, and that was always their, that was their story. You know, that was, it I read Metal Edge religiously, and they were fighting every other month. Yeah, so so it you know, it sounds like like they're lucky enough that they got all those three albums that they did. If they were so fractured already, yeah, I mean it really is. And I remember the I didn't. It's hard now because in my head it's one way. Like I have the timeline in my head of how I just remember it happening at the you know back then. But I thought when by the time that Walk Away video came out with Beast from the East that they had already split up. 
Hmm. And it makes it sound, if you read Wikipedia and stuff, they were still a band and functional for a minute after that, before they, you know, went into Lynch Mob and his solo record stuff. So I don't really know what the truth of that situation is, but to me, walk away was like the, you know, period on the sentence. They were, we're out of here kind of thing, you know? Yeah. But, you know, if you listen to that Beast from the East, which is, you know, clearly heavily overdubbed and has been doctored, uh, they were really good, man. I mean, that might have been the best they ever sounded because they were kind of notoriously not consistent live. So, you know, just because of various factors that are usually the same factors that affect all bands that, you know, from that era. But um, they were really good on that Beast from the East, man. That's, you know, song or, uh, you know, spit and polish applied or not. It's, you know, that was clearly a, a band functioning at a high level. And they just had their biggest album of their career. And then, you know, next thing you know, there's Lynch Mob and Don Dockin solo record. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well, let's just get the gun out and blow our own toes off. You know, that's just. <laughs> well, how many times did you see band live? I saw them on the dysfunctional tour at Milwaukee Summerfest, and they were really good. And I liked some of that record, too. And then I saw them on the Shadow Life tour, and they were really not good, <laughs> and we're clearly not getting along. And I, I swear to you, if I remember this correctly, I don't. George Lynch barely turned around to face the crowd. He had his back to the crowd a bunch, and they just—they clearly were not on the same page. And like I said, they train wrecked that song, and it was—it was not a good vibe. It was a huge turnout, but just not, you know. And they only played like two songs from that record and the rest was, I think it was just, I don't even know if it was actually out yet. It was about to come out, but yeah, it was just not a, a lot of bad, bad vibes coming off the stage. And then I saw them on the erase the slate tour opening for Def Leppard. And I have a great quote that I wrote down from that. <laughs> My kid Taylor, he was maybe seven or eight years old and uh his mom was infatuated with george lynch she just thought he was the greatest thing that's ever walked the earth and even <laughs> we with were, the kajagoogoo hair even with that that's probably where it started at so she had a huge crush on him and we were walking out of that show and then now mind you this is jeff pilson was playing with him they or not um Red Beach was playing with him. George is out of the band at this point. We're walking out. And I just remember Taylor, he's just this little kid, and he goes, I don't care what anybody says. Dawkins sucks. <laughs> just like he did not enjoy them at all. Like was not into it one bit. And I, so I have to periodically remind him that he said that. But um, <laughs> yeah, he just, just shat all over the show, like right there in just those few words. And I was like, well, I thought they were pretty good. I thought they sounded really good, but it did not sound the same but they were good but he that he did not share my feeling on that um and then i didn't see him again for several years i saw him here in nashville open for uh poison on the what that was the lightning strikes again tour i may have seen him one or two other times i don't kind of all sorts of once they started changing members it all kind of blurs together no, so I, you know i don't know i've always kind of kept up with them but I think that Erase the Slate was the last thing I actually owned from them, if I'm being totally honest. I actually like that album. 
Yeah, it has some cool yeah. songs on it, man. Rev, I mean, Rev's a great guitar player too. He's just what he does is a totally different thing. John Levin's a far more appropriate, you know, Lynch clone. You know, Reb didn't try and do the George Lynch thing. He Reb did the Reb thing. So, you know. So you never saw him in the '80s in like the heyday? No, they they played Peoria. I want to say they opened. They opened for maybe for Aerosmith. And I seem to recall my uncle Don went to the show and told me about it afterwards. Like maybe it was when I was just getting into it. it might have been the, the Tooth and Nail tour, possibly. Hmm. I'd have to I'd have to pick his brain on that. But yeah, they didn't play Peoria, really. I mean that that show with a uh, Red Beach that was Peoria. That was them with a uh, Def Leppard and Peoria. But I, they didn't play a lot in Peoria. I can't. I'm trying to think the. If they came another time and I missed them, but I can't, I don't recall them playing on the Under Lock and Key tour or Back for the Attack tour, because I certainly would have gone to those, I would think. I could be wrong, though. Hmm. I don't know. I'm getting up there in the years myself, so there's some there's some Swiss cheese happening up north, but um, I don't think so, man. I don't know that they played Peoria. It would have been cool to check out that thing, like Monsters of Rock, where they were with Van Halen and Scorpions. And oh Metallica. yeah, I've got some really good. I've got a couple good bootlegs of them on that tour that are that are decent. They're not. I mean, they're not. You know, they're the audio is kind of crappy. Plus, they were pretty far down in the bill, if I remember right. Weren't they like right after Kingdom Come, maybe? Yeah. Or no, no, Metallica was before before them. They went oh, on. Yeah, that, it was they Kingdom Come Metallica. and Metallica, and then Dokken in the middle. Yeah, and then Scorpions and. Van Halen were the two. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, the, the closest they played to us, I think maybe was Alpine Valley, and I, nobody, I didn't know anybody that would have taken me to that. I was plus I was like still a kid. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get myself up there. But yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen him, man. I mean, it's just one of those things where it seemed like Kiss hit Peoria on every tour, but Dokken did not hit pure on every tour they weren't and they opened for everybody back then too which is weird that they never that was the only time i think they ever played there but I, you know maybe jim glass or somebody that was you know a little less that, that's a little almost before my time maybe he would know he i'm sure he's avoided them several times in peoria so maybe he can tell you if they, <laughs> if they play if they play there on, on every tour they might have i don't know I guess since you mentioned Jim, that's like a myth that we got to bust or that I kind of like how you took the ball and ran with the Kenny and the Foo Fighters thing, which was awesome. And your post that you were putting together last year, that was hilarious. I guess I kind of, I guess, unintentionally started the docking thing with Jim uh, because we were going to a show and I was going to play docking in the car and he like turned it off and he's like, nope. And I was like, what, you hate docking? And he goes... He just said the same thing kind of that Kenny did. He goes, I don't hate the band. I just don't like this guy. Whereas Kenny's like, well, I think girls overexposed. Okay, so like clarify Don. for me. What is what is Jim not like? Is Jim not like Don Dockin' the person or Don Dockin's voice? I think he doesn't like Don Dockin' the person because he says he's he's a jerk. Eh, does that did something? Did he? Was there a exposure to Don Dockin that made him but think then that? It or just almost like... sounds like it is kind of personal because I was like, like, well, sometimes you can separate, you know, the artist 
from the band. I mean, like Dave Mustaine's like a douchebag, but I still listen to Megadeth, <laughs> you know. But like, yeah, maybe Jim, maybe maybe something happened at like a, a docking show or something. I don't know. Well, I you know I have never personally spoken to Don Dockin. I have never had Don Dockin uh, the opportunity for Don Dockin to say anything rude to me to my face. So I, I don't know, but I have seen like interviews with him i've seen appearances and stuff where he kind of came off as a little you know overly fond of himself but i mean dude i don't man you know there's a lot there's a lot of stuff i mean that long of a career you're gonna piss somebody off so who knows what he did but you know i've heard him say some stuff in interviews and there's you know too there was a period there where you kind of had to take a side if you were a metal fan or a rock fan you know when the that camp split you know jeff pilson kind of went off into the wilderness and did his little war and peace thing but you know lynch bob <laughs> don dock were those were big records when they came out and that was a, a war you know to see who was going to win and who you know who who could take it and run with it you know so yeah you know maybe jim was forced to make a choice and yeah you know or he saw he saw Don in his karate outfit and it was a little too much. Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe he got maybe he saw a little more than the rest of us did in that under that gi. I don't know, but uh, it was uh, it certainly stuck in my mind. I know that. Um, I will say know. the time I saw Dokken twice on the riverfront here in Peoria. It was like 2013, and then I saw him again uh, 2016 at uh, that Heron Festival where you guys played there a couple years later, but. Mm-hmm. The 2013 show, how I said, like, I was already kind of, like, maybe not as into it as I thought I was going to be because of the uh, lacking of the uh, the backing vocals. Well, Don, he seemed like he would rather just be anywhere else because it was, like, an outside show. And for some reason, they had a whole bunch of bands playing, so they didn't take the stage till 10 or 10.30 or something. So yeah. it's getting kind of late. Usually that's when shows end or something, and they're just starting but he's got leather jacket on, he's got sunglasses on, and he walks up to the front of the stage and introduces some songs, and he's like, I wrote this song in 1984, uh, check it out. And then they just kicked into the song, and he just seemed like he was just like, yeah, not really into singing, like you're saying, almost like talking or something. Well, and dude, it- he has never been a cool front, man. It has gotten progressively worse over the years, but, I mean, you can go back and watch all his old videos. I mean, he does that finger pistol pointing bullshit that he does and <laughs> air guitar, which those are two of those things that, you know, I, neither one of those is, is cool in my book, but he's, that's, those are things that he does consistently as like part of his shtick. <laughs> but the last few years, man, he's like not animated at all. And like you said, he kind of comes out. I mean, look, I don't know how old Don Dockin is. I have to look it up and see, but uh, I mean, if they came, if, you know, he started doing music in the, you know, mid late seventies or something. He's, he's got to be up there and you know, he's not in good shape and he's had some health issues and he's had voice surgery and he's had all this stuff, you know, maybe don't smoke, you know, a pack a day and that might be that'll help some of that stuff. But <laughs> either way, I mean, it's got to get, it's at a certain point, maybe it just became a paycheck for him. Maybe Jim saw him on a paycheck night where he's yeah. just doing it. Like you said, you know, just phoning it in. Although the 2016 you know. show, uh, the Heron Fest, he seemed a little bit more enthusiastic or something, but I think maybe uh, maybe he was, I think they were about to do those reunion shows in Japan or something. So uh, maybe he was kind of like getting in shape already and was kind of like 
uh, gearing up for that. But um, that I don't be- know if you remember the layout of the Heron Festa where they kind of have the stage. And there's almost like some kind of raised up platforms along the side for like, yeah. I guess, VIP yeah. boxes. He actually got out. Like I was in the pit um, area, but he actually went out along the side of the stage in front of some of those boxes and kind of like he kind of jogged out along the side of the catwalk thing and then came back. So he was kind of like actually jogging and he saw somebody had dropped a carton of, of marble reds out there and he didn't want to, <laughs> he didn't those good away. So he's running out to grab. And if you watch that, that return to the East or whatever the hell that thing is called, the, the reunion thing, that's not, that's not, I mean, the version of the album is not what he's saying live because there's tons of bootleg video and they have clearly retracted all the vocals for that, you know? So, and it's, then they're terrible still, but they're not as terrible as they really were at the shows. And he used to be a really good singer. I mean, dude, that, that in that Wikipedia thing, I've heard this before, but you know, part of the reason that he kind of came to attention was him, you know, subbing to do the Scorpions demos. Yeah. When, yeah, Klaus Mine's voice was messed up, you know. So, and that's a that's a, you know, that's a serious tall order, man. Because Klaus Mine is a, is a great, especially back then, a great singer. So, you know, he's not Don wasn't a slouch, but you know, I don't know what he did to Jim though. Somewhere along the way, he let Jim down really bad because yeah. Jim's clearly got it out for him. <laughs> well, that's funny too, or like weird that you mention uh, those Japan or like the return to the East. Cause I thought it was weird cause I bought that and it's like the video is from the show at like, Oh yeah. Here in North America, Dakota, like in but Dakota the audio from the album is from um, the Japan stuff. Yeah. It's like weird how they did that. But then it's like the video is weird too. Cause it looks like they shot it on a VHS tape and it's got the weird like eighties wipes or the transitions. It's they like, used the, I think they used the in-house camera system. Oh, okay. They have a multi-angle camera, like kind of like the dude with the whiskey and stuff. They've got an in-house camera system yeah. you can cut angles. But my guess would be the reason they didn't use the audio from that show would be because the audio from that show is, I don't know how many of those clips you've seen because that stuff leaked out almost oh, immediately. Really? And it was, I was like, oh man, dude, it was brutally bad. That, that you know, to me, it was just that they were probably trying to do you know, as much damage because they, you know, that was a the deal to make that record. I'm sure was cut well before that record was. You know, they didn't know what he's what condition he's going to be in. They surely couldn't have predicted that he was going to suck that bad. Yeah. So you know, what do you do in that situation? I mean, I there's a couple, and I'm not going to name names of bands, but there's a couple bands from that era that have released live records that were clearly contractual obligations where no doctoring was done, and they're embarrassing, and they should not be out there for public consumption, but they are because the deal was struck and, you know, nobody knows they suck till they buy them. So the money's spent, but that docking thing, man, it's, I mean, I listened to it. It's, I tried to listen to it. I should say, I got a few songs and I was like, I just can't, this is just, you know, this isn't good. I mean, the band is still great, but it just, I don't know. I hate that man. Cause I, as, as a fan, you don't want to see them, go down you know it's like watching a boxer you know one fight too many kind of thing where it's like man if you just retired after that last one you know you could have gone out on on top you know yeah but this is well past you know the sell-by date has you know 
has long since passed on the, on on him vocally. So it's like, yeah. Here's one but, last little thing, though, uh, too. Speaking of how we said, like, well, maybe Don's like a week, kind of a weaker link now. But if you took him out of the equation or like how they've taken, um, I guess, George out of the equation. Well, there was an album. Uh, I guess where I'm going with this was 10 years ago. There was that T and N or Tooth and Nail. Yeah. Yeah. Where they re-recorded uh, songs and then had guest vocals. Did you ever get into that? Uh, I've, I mean, I heard that stuff when it came out, and I've heard the End Machine, which is yeah. kind of the same thing. Uh, I mean, it's it's cool. I mean, those those um, the Lynch Pilsen records, the LP thing is cool. Yeah. It's all. I mean, I, I, look, I will admit this much. I can when I when I'm disparaging Don from a vocal standpoint, it's just a simple matter of look, man. He just doesn't. It's not his fault. He just doesn't have it anymore. Yeah. It's not a. But I mean, he's a, he was a really good songwriter, man. And I think those those End Machine records are fine. They're 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 really well done. They sound great. Uh, it just but something about those guys, those four dudes together, was the magic. So those things they don't have the same. And also, man, I'm old, and I, I'm not going to digest that stuff the same as I did when i was 16 you know what i mean so i don't know that i have it in me to like appreciate and if so if a new doc and record came out i may not even if it was all four of them i would be like eh. but chances are if george lynch is on it i'm gonna at least give it one spin and probably find something i dig about it i just would prefer if they were still functional and functioning at that you know yeah at least i'm uh somewhat you know high level you know, it's just not going to be. I mean, even that new song on the the reunion record, which is a pretty cool song, I thought. It sounds real, real cool. Um, you know, they did their best with what they had to work with. You know, the band sounds fantastic. Don sounds, you know, like a propped up Don. You know, yeah. What so, was that? Just another day. I think yeah. The song. Yeah. You know, it's it's just a. It is what it is. I mean, they're. I mean, shit, Mick's retired. I mean, doesn't really want to do it anymore. So, I mean, that that right there says a lot. You know, just you can't do this forever. And they, you know, I think about that a lot with a lot of these 80s rock bands, man, just in general. You know, you vocally, some of these guys really painted themselves into a corner, man. You know, if you want to be – it's one thing to be like, you know, Kip Winger and you got to sing 17 until you're 70 years old and, and feel like a – creeper but it's another thing entirely to put like you know to be rob halford or something and have to hit those high notes you know content lyrical content aside to physically be able to do that stuff beyond a certain age man is really asking a lot because it is athletics you know when you get down to it so unless you're you know robin zander and you can drink a fifth of jack and smoke a cigar and walk out on stage and hit the high note of the flame every night it, that's, that's a freak of nature situation you know that most of these guys can't do that so you know i get it it just sucks that they keep doing it anyway you know what i mean yeah. that's the that's the bummer of it so i'll just remember these first handful of records fondly and i'll just stick to listening to those and you know I'll pretend the other stuff that didn't happen, but then I see something on YouTube and go, ah, shit, they're still doing it. So I guess that's you know. a good way to end it. It's hard to say who's the 
it was really to blame. It for sounded all that. like they were just oil and water or something. Well, they also never really got. If you think, if you go back and look at their track record for the, you know, there's really three big records. There's mm-hmm. Tooth and Nail, Under Lock and Key, and Back for the Attack. And then if you count the live record, but that's kind of you know, they that was a pretty brief period of time. They never really got over. I mean, they hit platinum, but if you think, I mean, today that would be a huge deal. But back then. Man, for, for you know, Dokken sells a million copies, but you know, Poison was selling four million and five million copies. Cinderella was selling three million copies. You know, those were the big mega bands. Dokken always kind of—I don't even know that they ever really headlined arenas, except maybe they did on Back to the Attack. But like I said, they didn't play Peoria, so it was probably a major market thing. You know? Yeah, that was why they I never kinda, got over. I guess that was kind of why I started out asking you, like if they were that present on MTV back then, because they never seemed like a top tier band from the eighties. Cause they're not on the same level as yeah. Like a poison or a Motley Crue. Or- no, I don't know that they ever really, I don't think they ever really made that jump. I mean, if you think about it too, I mean like Warren's a good example. They only very briefly made that jump before they imploded. Yeah. But I mean, they did make that jump and they probably could have, you know, timing wise and had, you know, had Janie not, you know, made the moves he made. Maybe they could have, you know, held on to that a little bit longer. But then, really, that was a one. It was a very small window of time for those bands to be, you know, multi-platinum. Dokken never really achieved multi-platinum status, to my knowledge. I don't think they had anything bigger than a platinum record. I could be wrong, but you know, they weren't. They were like a, you know, you know, they're opening band, flirting with maybe being able to headline theaters. Yeah. They they weren't really a, they just never got over that. And I don't know if it was because they weren't, you know, poppy enough, or they didn't, you know, they had a lot of MTV songs and stuff, but nothing was a big radio hit or anything. You know, Poison had radio hits. You know, Cinderella had like real legit radio hits and stuff. I don't beyond, I mean, maybe Alone Again, and In My Dreams are probably the only like real. And then burning like a flame was that got played on the on the radio a little bit, but even Dream Warriors, I guess, wasn't enough to like take them. It was a big MTV song, but I don't know. I'd have, I'd have to go look at the chart position stuff. But yeah, I mean, and that was an you know that was another thing too, man. Had that been on the record, and not had the record not been released two years after that, that might have really helped that album sell too. You know, oh, like if you think about it, because it by by the time that album came out, that thing was done i mean what's the let me see that album came out what year was back for the attack um 87 i think and the nightmare one yeah was like 85 or 86 so there was well it says on here 87 asylum records so maybe but i thought i read somewhere where it's like over a year or so or two years between i think it would be because i think i don't know if i'm totally right on the money but i think the first nightmare was 84 and then they usually pump those out every year like the friday the 13th so it would be at least 86 for yeah, uh, Dream Warriors. Well, maybe that's just by the time this thing I got the single then. But yeah, I mean that's a, you know, it's just a weird thing, man. Timing is everything on those. Image at that point, like I said, they didn't really have a, you know, Don's not like a, a toady or anything, but he's yeah. not like a he's not Brett Michaels, you know, he's not John Bon Jovi, and he was also too, man. He was a little bit long in the tooth when they first came out. He was an older dude to begin with. He'd been around a lot longer than you know most of those guys and warrant stuff for like had barely cracked 21 you know don dock and came out in the fucking 70s so you know what i'm saying so he was already a little bit 
you know, you know, it's it's like when I was when I was a kid, I didn't understand why people didn't like people didn't, like in my age didn't think Kiss was cool, and it was because the chicks didn't think they were cool because they were already old. You know, I was, they're all into Bon Jovi and stuff and Brett Michaels, and I'm like, man, why don't people like Crazy Nights? Because those guys are a bunch of old dudes to them. <laughs> you know, I just didn't get it because I wasn't trying to bang the guys in Kiss. I just liked the songs. You know. But it didn't hit me that, oh, yeah, because they're not cool because they're not young anymore. Nobody ever got sick of Ozzy, and he was old. So I don't know. Yeah, like I guess Ozzy came back around because of the Osbournes, and then he was cool again. So it's like, I don't know. Like everything's like kind of like Well, and that's a lot like to that. overcome, man. You saw yeah. the ultimate sin. I mean, you see that shit he was wearing? I mean, that was B. Arthur wouldn't have worn that on TV. <laughs> and he was out there with frosted tips and stuff, yeah. rocking that. Glittery, same thing Gene Simmons did on Asylum and stuff. Man, that shit was embarrassing. It should have been embarrassing. So they managed to somehow overcome that. And Ozzy did it and was fat on top of it. He's wearing a damn, like a unitar with his big belly poking out. It's like, man, there was nothing cool about Ozzy during that point. Jakey Lee was the only thing holding that together. <laughs> Be Arthur. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Like, though he had those big, long, like, uh, bedazzled coats and stuff i mean he had frosted tips on it i mean he had this hair it was hilarious i mean that was that's the same guy that put out blizzard Oz, man. yeah like, you're right the- dude because like the first time that really ozzy came across my radar was he was at one of the early wrestlemanias in like 86 and he's wearing some huge like pink like almost like jumpsuit or like tracksuit looking thing and yeah he's got white hair so he doesn't even look like the ozzy yeah I mean, i'm telling you it was, it, was, it was rue mcclanahan it was total golden girls yeah man. totally had that same kind of outfit i was like who where'd you take him to but, but i mean all those guys were doing that then it was just a thing and you know and that's the thing i think that's kind of what the underlock and key cover when we're making fun of that that's kind of what docking was going for in their own way they just tried to make it more like they were like I don't know, Victorian metal or something. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but they did that same kind of thing and they poofed out the hair. So if you can get Ozzy to do it, I mean, why can't you get Don Dockin and Jeff Pilson and Mick Brown and George Lynch to do it? I mean, that's is what it is, but yeah. So. All right, man. Well, yeah. Uh, thanks for t- uh, taking the time to uh, talk about Dockin with me. Cause honestly, like, as as much as people like we mentioned like you know poison and like motley Crue and stuff like i would have to say dawkins like probably my favorite band out of that kind of style from the 80s either them or scorpions well i'd probably lean it'd be a toss-up for me but it would be it'd be dawkins or you know this is gonna be unpopular but i really love white lion from that era is might be my favorite from that time but you know and they kind of came along a little bit after on the that tail stuff. end, yeah, yeah, but I mean, and I, I mean, I'm, I, you know, anything that Jakey Lee was in, I was into all the guitar stuff, man. I mean, Rat, George Lynch, and Jakey Lee, those are kind of all cut from the same cloth, you know. Yeah. So there was a lot of that stuff happening. I just think, you know, again, it goes back to who had the, who had that song, that one song they needed to get over, or two songs, and you know, Rat had Round and Round and Lay It Down, you know, Doc and Head Alone Again and. You know, they just didn't do the same amount of damage on the charts, I guess. So, yeah. But, you know, it's timing. Yeah. And they got a, and a good looking dude out front that may or may not be a guy. So, you know, that went a long way back then. <laughs> or now, man, uh, um, he may or may not have hair. So. <laughs> I think we all know the answer to that yeah. question. Well, 
All right. Well, thanks, that's a, Danny. That's, that's, a, that's another episode entirely. <laughs> yeah, I might have to have Brent take the reins on the poison episode. We'll get him and Jim Glass together on that one. Let them do a episode about poison. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, CC Deville didn't piss in Jim's Wheaties too. But we'll see. Well, thanks for listening to episode eighty-six of A Sides. As much as we ragged on Dokken, I do have a fondness for those albums. I love Dokken. Hopefully you learned something, and hopefully you'll come back for another episode of A-Sides.